Good evening, church family. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark this evening, and we are in Mark 15. We're looking at verses 16 to 39. We are in just the right place. We're almost finished with the Gospel of Mark, and uh, by God's providence, we're in just the right place for uh, Easter. We'll be looking tonight at the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, here in Mark 15, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week we will look at his burial and resurrection at the end of Mark 15 and, and in the, then uh, Mark 16. So, um, to set this up, uh, let, me, let me say this. God has always been in the habit of turning things upside down. Uh, he often, in the Old Testament, chose the younger brother rather than the firstborn son to be the one to inherit the blessing. He chose a small and seemingly insignificant nation to be uh, the means through which he would bless the entire world. And the Bible says that he put his wisdom on display through the seemingly foolish and offensive death of the Messiah on the cross. So what looks like folly to the world is God's wisdom on display. We see that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in particular. Uh, in a similar way, we're going to see this evening in Mark 15, the mockery and shame that is heaped up on Jesus on the cross actually serves to point us to the truth. So just like God did things uh, upside down again and again and again throughout the story of Scripture, we're going to see how God turned what people thought about Jesus' death on its head. What they thought was uh, ridiculous and foolish turned out to be uh, the wisdom and truth of God. So let me read for us Mark 16, or excuse me, 15, starting in verse 16 down to verse 39. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they called, or excuse me, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the follower of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now there are several verses in this passage that we could spend an entire evening on, uh, but I want you to see this theme in Jesus' crucifixion of how the mockery and scorn heaped upon Jesus actually serves to show us the truth. So first of all, there's an irony in the mockery that is heaped up on Jesus in verses 16 and 20. All these Roman soldiers who Jesus has been handed over to for his crucifixion, they begin to mock him. He's been, Jesus has been charged as being a, a rival king to Caesar, the king of the Jews. And so they mock him as a king, and they do that by dressing him with a purple cloak, a purple robe. They twist together, Mark says, a crown made out of thorns that they put upon his head. Um, and they begin to salute him in mockery, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking him with a reed. They're spitting on him. They're kneeling down in homage, laughing, um, ridiculing the idea that this man, Jesus, who they don't know is God in the flesh, that the idea that he could be king is preposterous to them. They are mocking this idea. But in truth... He is the king. He is to be treated as royalty. He is going to be crowned. He is going to be hailed as the king of the Jews. People are going to bow down to him and worship him and give homage to him. So their mockery for all its wickedness and blasphemy actually points to the truth about who Jesus is, that he is the king of the Jews and that he is worthy of worship and homage and even obedience. So their mockery is ironic because it points to the truth. And then in verses 21 to 32, uh, we see even the religious leaders from Israel mocking Jesus, and they end up saying something that they intend as an insult to Jesus, that they intend to make Jesus look absurd, um, that is actually quite true. Notice that um, it says, after we're told that he was brought to Golgotha, which means place of a skull, um, first of all, it says in verse 23 that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That's a kind of sedative to dull the pain. And uh, Jesus refuses that because he's taking upon himself the full weight of the suffering that we deserve because of our sin. He does not dull it. He drinks the cup uh, to the full. And uh, so he refuses um, that offer, and then they crucify him, they divide his garments, they cast lots to decide who's going to get what, and they put the charge against him, 
printed up uh, on the cross, verse 26 says, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So there again, uh, they're proclaiming who Jesus really is. They mean it as a mockery, but it's true. In fact, in one of the Gospels, it tells us uh, that that charge was written um, in all the major uh, languages that were that were spoken at that time. Um, and so they were proclaiming to everyone there who could read who Jesus was. Again, meaning it as a mockery, but in fact being the truth. Jesus is the King, the long-awaited, promised Messiah, the King from David's line who will sit on David's throne and bring God's kingdom to earth uh, in a way that brings peace and justice forever. So they mock him as the king of the Jews, just as the soldiers did earlier. He's crucified, verse 27 says, with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And then notice this in verse 29. Those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests... And the scribes, so these are the religious leaders, right? mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Now they think this is absurd that Jesus who healed so many people, who even raised people from the dead like Lazarus and a widow's son, uh, that Jesus who saved, who delivered, who rescued so many people from demons, from disease, from death, that he cannot save himself. But without realizing it, they have hit upon something profoundly true. If Jesus is going to save anybody else, he cannot save himself. That is why he cannot come down from the cross. Not because he is not able. Not because there were not legions of angels whom he could call upon at any moment to deliver him, as Jesus points out in another place. He could have done that. He could have done come down from the cross. He could have delivered himself from all this suffering and anguish and pain. But he chooses not to precisely because this is the only way that he can save anybody else. By taking our place, by staying on the cross, by enduring to the full the punishment that our sins deserved so that we could be fully and truly forgiven once and for all and forever through his death and his coming resurrection. So they mock him as one who can't save himself. But again, they're actually pointing us to the truth. They're telling us something true about Jesus. He couldn't save himself in order to save others. Um, Verse 32 says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They wanted him to show that he was the Messiah by coming down from the cross. But in fact, he showed that he was the Messiah by staying on the cross. So here's something else that they missed. And we can't go into this in detail, but I I encourage you to do this yourself if you haven't done this before. Turn to Psalm 22. Even pause this in a minute and, and do this yourself. Turn to Psalm 22 and read the first 18 verses of Psalm 22 next to what Mark gives us here in Mark 15 about Jesus' crucifixion and compare what 
David says in Psalm 22 and what Mark says here in these verses about Jesus' death. And see how many of the things that Psalm 22 says are fulfilled in Jesus' death. You'll find there the uh, prophecy about them casting lots for his garments. Um, you'll find there uh, sayings about uh, Jesus uh, about being mocked, people wagging their heads and mocking, saying, you know, if you trust in God, excuse me, why doesn't God deliver you? Those kinds of things. Um, you'll see the, the quote that we're going to, uh, it's coming up in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 22 by staying on the cross, by enduring all this suffering. And, if, and they knew this psalm. If they had eyes to see, they should have, would have believed. They were blind. It was not what Jesus was failing to do that was the reason for their unbelief. It was what they refused to see that was the reason for their unbelief. So they didn't see what was going on. Um, so they are, again, by even by their mockery, by their scorn, they are pointing us to the truth. Now, finally, in verses 33 to 39, we read of the last moments of Jesus's life here on the earth. Uh, Mark tells us it was the, at the sixth hour, darkness had come over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the Jews reckon the hours from... 6 a.m. So six hours after 6 a.m. is noon. Nine hours after 6 a.m. is 3 p.m. as we would call it. So this is from noon to 3. In the middle of the day, there's darkness over the whole land. And Jesus cries out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, those words come from Psalm 22, verse 1, which is a way of drawing our attention to that psalm, as well as a genuine expression of Jesus in some mysterious way, experiencing the forsakenness that our sins deserve. We ought to be forsaken by God, but Jesus in our place for a moment in some mysterious way is forsaken by God on account of our sin, not his sin. He has no sin, no reason to be forsaken by God, experience any kind of separation from God, but he does taste that forsakenness for us on our behalf. Some of the people misunderstood what he was saying when he says, Eloi, Eloi, that's, that means my God. Well, the name Elijah means my God is Yah, short for Yahweh, the divine name. Um, and so they think he's calling Elijah and they want to see if Elijah will come and rescue him. But then uh, verse 37 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He died. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signaling that Jesus has now opened the way for us to come into God's presence through his death. What was formerly sealed off in the temple now has been opened up for all who come to the Father through Jesus. As Ephesians 2.18 says, through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. And then finally, verse 39, when the centurion, the Roman soldier who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. It's a Gentile, not a Jew, a Gentile who at Jesus' last breath says, this must be the son of God. 
This must be, which is what the whole gospel of Mark is about. The very first verse of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it closes with a Roman soldier saying, this must be him. This must be the Son of God. So though his death looked to many like the end of any hope that Jesus was the Messiah, the King who would establish God's kingdom, who would reign on David's throne forever. For those who had eyes to see, his death demonstrated that he was, in fact, the promised king. But if he is the promised king, who will reign on David's throne forever, then he can't stay dead. 